Welcome to another episode of Obiter Dicta, Bloomsbury Professionals podcast on all things law and tax with me, Rachel Sherlock, and also Gronya McMahon. In this episode, we welcome Mark Tottenham back to the podcast. Mark is a barrister and co-author of A Guide to Expert Witness Evidence, along with writing the annual Irish Tax Report on Bloomsbury Professional Online. In our podcast today, Mark shares with us his knowledge of issues and cases surrounding expert witness evidence, his key tips in advising practitioners on briefing experts, and his experience writing the annual tax reports. We hope you enjoy the show. Mark, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast again today. The topic of expert witness evidence has received some publicity of late because of two very important cases. And I thought we might discuss those cases today, if you didn't mind, and start with those. There is the very important case of Sweeney versus VHI, and that dealt with competition law proceedings. Would you mind giving us, I suppose, your insight into that case? Right. Well, it's a slightly involved case, but basically, as you said, it was a competition law action. It was an action uh, by the the promoter of a private hospital against the VHI, uh, basically saying that VHI was in breach of its um, position. Uh, It had a dominant position in the marketplace and was abusing its position. Um, And they had retained this. So Sweeney, the promoter of the private hospital, had retained Moore McDool, who's a well-known economist, to advise them. And because competition law is all to do with the size of a market and the abuse of market, uh, expert uh, economic evidence is central to the determination. Um, VHI then, once they got wind of the fact that Moore McDool was advising the plaintiff, they said, well, Moore McDool has previously acted for us in other proceedings, including one live action, even though the live action had been dormant, dormant for a number of years. So they brought an application to the High Court asking the High Court not to allow Moore McDool to act for the plaintiff. And that was refused by the the High Court. That went then on appeal to the Court of Appeal that overturned that decision um, and said that he should not act for the plaintiff. And that then went to the Supreme Court. And what the Supreme Court said essentially was that because Moore McDool had acted for the defendant in other cases, that he was privy to certain confidential information that shouldn't be disclosed to the plaintiff or that might affect his uh, his advice to the plaintiff. Now, Moore McDool had said effectively that he, he'd given an undertaking that he wouldn't disclose any confidential information, um, but that wasn't considered to be enough. Um, they effectively said that where an expert witness who has previously acted for another party is in possession of uh, privileged or confidential information, um, that that would affect his ability to act for the other party going forward. Now, I've written a piece for the Northern Ireland Law Quarterly, which I think is a, a, a rival publisher to yourselves, um, querying that decision. Now, I should say it's a unanimous decision of the Supreme Court and it's affirming a unanimous decision of the Court of Appeal. But I, I suppose I have two issues with that. One is that a, an, expert is, an expert witness is supposed to be independent. It, it should be possible for somebody to act in one case for one party and act for, another, for the opposite side in another case. Um, but the other problem, I think, is this issue of confidential information. 
And what they said in Sweeney was that when you're preparing a pro competition law action, that there's a lot of backwards and forwards between the legal team and the experts in terms of preparing the pleadings and that sort of thing. Now, it's generally viewed that experts, witnesses should not be in possession of confidential information because effectively they're supposed to be able to give a detached, independent opinion to the court. And if they have confidential information, they can't then inform the court of the basis of their opinion because there'll be information that they can't disclose or can't be disclosed to the other side. So I think there are going to be problems with Sweeney going forward. And it may be that ultimately it's confined to the competition law sphere because of the nature of that kind of action. Yes, it, it would seem a worrying trend for practitioners that may want to use and, you know, that they may use some experts for many cases. And, and then if that is the case, then we also have the case, Mark, of Duffy versus McGee. And there the Court of Appeal was very critical of an expert witness who gave mm. nakedly biased evidence for a defendant. Would you tell us a little bit about that case? Yeah, so that case arose from a house in County Donegal. Um, where the owners of the house wanted to get spray-in insulation put in, and they retained a contractor to spray the insulation. And what happened was that the, the basically, my understanding is that if you put in the spray-in insulation, because it contains certain toxic chemicals, you're supposed to keep people outside the house for a good 24 hours afterwards. Now, the mother and daughter in this family went in within two hours, and the father went in sometime later, and all three of them then developed severe and permanent respiratory illness. Now, shortly before the hearing, the defendants retained a new American expert, and this expert, uh, who, who, who had already, he, he'd published material more or less saying that he was on the side of the, of the industry in this, he basically went, first of all, he said that the plaintiffs had effectively deceived the court in terms of when they'd gone back into the house. He also said that he thought that the respiratory illness might be caused by something different. In, in fact, the, um, the, the, the fact that they'd had an attic removed before this spray insulation, he said they might have been inhaled sort of fiberglass fibers or something. And the and he wasn't a medic. He was a, a toxicologist, so an expert in poisons, not a not, not not a doctor. And then he also purported to try and reframe the test at Irish law in relation to raise ipsa loquitur. And for all of those reasons, the court just said he was nakedly biased. He was not there either to determine the truthfulness of the plaintiff or to determine his own facts in relation to the cause of the illness or to determine matters of Irish law. He was there to advise in relation to the specific issue of, uh, and, and he was supposed to do it in a detached way. And I mean, in fairness, both the High Court judge and the Court of, and one of the Court of Appeal judges said they'd never come across such an, a, a biased expert. But, um, but Mr. Justice Collins in a concurring judgment did effectively say, well, there are lessons here for all expert witnesses going forward and was very much, um, Say, saying not that if it, that it was open that uh, and should, I, I should say critical of the lawyers basically said that the defendants should never have put forward this expert in the first place that the plaintiffs should have applied at the outset to exclude his evidence because it was clearly inadmissible and he also said that um, in an appropriate case it was open to the court to make a cost order against the expert in person so um, 
So certainly there are implications going forward in relation to that case. Uh, yes, Mark, you kind of mentioned the the kind of lessons that can be drawn for all expert uh, witnesses. Mm. Would you have key tips that you would advise practitioners if they are briefing experts or calling them to give evidence in cases? Is there particular things mm. they should be aware of? Yeah, well, I think um, to, 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 pl- to plug the book that, uh, <laughs> that Bloomsbury published, uh, we have a, a, a template letter of instruction in the appendix to that book, which does set out in quite some detail what is expected of the expert and raises certain issues that need to be addressed at the outset. But I mean, really, you, what you want is you first of all, before you even retain the expert, you need to be sure of what the issue is that requires expert evidence. Um, secondly, you need to make sure that the ex- expert is appropriately qualified. You need to make sure that the expert understands his or her, her duties. And then when the report comes in, what you really be looking for is to make sure that the expert has properly presented the facts of the case. You know, an expert opinion can't be divorced from the facts of the case. And there's always a danger that the expert either deliberately or accidentally will misunderstand a certain aspect. And then they also need to inform the court of their specialist knowledge. It's, 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 you know, it's very easy in some cases for the expert simply to, to, to rehash the facts and, and then say, well, in my opinion, X, Y, and Z, the, you know, the, this was an unsafe system of work. Really, what you're looking for is for the experts to be properly, properly experts to actually say, well, look, based on the specialist knowledge of my profession, this is why I'm coming to this conclusion. And then the, the conclusion needs to be independent and informed and honest. You know, you, you, you don't want a report that looks as if they're simply trying to bat for your own side. It needs to be properly detached. Yes. And I suppose moving from, you know, what makes it just an acceptable expert witness to a strong one. We, you've already mentioned your book, which is a guide to expert witness evidence, which you wrote with uh, Emma Jane Prendergast, Kieran Joyce and Hugh Madden. Um, it's been a very successful book and is still available if any of our listeners are interested. It's also available on our Irish Civil Litigation online service. But a key part of the book examines the role of the expert witness in the pre-trial context, including mm. report writing as well as uh, the expert giving evidence in court. Could you give us a brief overview of what makes a strong expert witness in terms of giving evidence? Like, What should we look out for? Well, I suppose I, 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 I'm, I would be hesitant to use, even use the term strong because the, the danger, of course, is that, you know, so many people in the litigation, in litigation feel that they want an expert that's going to help them win their case. And unfortunately, it's just so well established that that's not what you're looking for. What, what you really need is somebody who's going to cooperate throughout the, the pre-trial process. So, what I mean, what I've certainly found in practice is that sometimes you get an expert report that one way or another doesn't properly address the issues that you need to have addressed. And so sometimes you need to go back rather sort of politely to the expert and say, could you please look at this again in light of whatever issue? And I've often found in the past that if you simply write to them, they're a little bit sort of defensive about things. And so that's the stage in my experience that it's best to organize a consultation with the expert where you sit down with them and say, well, look, you know, we're going to need you to re-examine this issue uh, or whatever. Um, Just explain to them what it it is you're looking for and make it clear that you're not trying to guide them in a particular way. You're simply looking for an answer to a question that you don't feel has been properly addressed. 
And then apart from that, what the the expert, it, it's well established, although not necessarily followed in practice, that experts are supposed to meet with the experts on the other side to try and narrow down the issues. And again, the, the danger that you certainly see in the case law is that one expert will, will sort of get in some way their, their their opinion will be overborne by the other side and they'll suddenly kind of go, oh, do you know what? I've changed my mind. And they won't necessarily have given sufficient source to why they've changed their mind. Um, and so you need them to be reasonably clear what their opinion is when they're going into that meeting. Um, not not with a view to, to 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 sticking with it through thick and thin, but making sure that they don't sim- simply come up against, for example, a more experienced, better known colleague, and sort of feel feel that in some way they have to kind of bow to their superior knowledge, because you know we all know that anybody at any stage of their career can get things wrong. And I suppose a key area of this would be training, and you've done quite a bit of work in the area of training experts. Um, what are the common mistakes that they make when preparing reports? Um, well, well, the 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 training of experts is is quite is in fact based on case law. Training of experts always has to be kind of independent of any individual case. So there's a case, there's an English case called R. V. Mamadou, which has been followed in Ireland um, by a decision of Mr. Justice Charlton. Um, so it, it, it's not necessarily that there are common, I, I mean, so I've been involved in quite a lot of expert witness training over the last few years. Um, I, I suppose the, the, the problem you'd find with a lot of reports, as with reports in any sphere, is that maybe they're just not, uh, they don't properly address the question. Sometimes they're a little bit sketchy. You, you know, you really, a good expert report should have a good summary of the facts so that everybody's clear where the expert is coming from. A, a proper analysis of the of the specialist issues and and uh, where possible a firm conclusion on the specific question that's been put to the expert that sounds great mark and practical tips but do you enjoy the the work of training experts because this is this is your you know you're you're quite the expert yourself on experts well, well yeah that, well I, I suppose, I, yeah, I mean, I suppose thanks to Bloomsbury, I mean, I, I kind of fell into the area of experts' uh, uh, evidence. And since publishing the book, I have been invited to a, a number of different conferences and courses. And yeah, it's always very interesting. And I mean, sometimes you're dealing with people who have very limited experience of courts, but want to get into that sort of that, that world. And then I was in, a, on a, in one expert witness training session where, frankly, most of them had been giving evidence for years and years. And I really felt there was very little I could teach them. But I think, you know, like any good professional, they wanted to keep their skills up to date and make sure that they they knew the most recent direct directions from the court. I'm I'm sure they found it very beneficial. May we talk about the 2016 case of Kennedy versus Cordia Services LLP Scotland, where the UK Supreme Court comprehensively examined the admissibility of expert evidence. And in your book with Bloomsbury, you discuss with your co-authors that if the courts here adopted that approach, the trial judge would have a broad discretion as to whether to admit expert evidence. I wonder, could you explain this for practitioners? Yeah, I mean, the Kennedy case, funnily enough, that's actually a Scottish case, which, so although it was appealed to the UK Supreme Court, I mean, specifically concerned Scotland, but it's phrased in such a way that it's been followed in other UK jurisdictions and certainly 
I think at least mentioned in in Ireland, um, in Irish case law. Um, the, I mean, essentially what what we did in the book was we, we compared the UK approach with the Canadian approach because the Canadians have tended to take a much more jaundiced view of expert evidence um, for a longer period, and so they have what what we described as a as, as a sort of. Uh, an exclusionary approach that expert evidence should only be introduced if it has to be introduced. Whereas what the, the court found in Kennedy was that really it was the discretion of the trial judge. Since Kennedy, there's been an Irish decision of um, Hypertrust and FBD. Um, Mr. Justice MacDonald adopted a, a, a case from England and Wales that I think we didn't address in the book. But basically he said that the rule was the, the test was, first of all, is the expert evidence necessary to determine the issue, the issue? And if not, would it be of assistance to the court? And so ba- so it's basically a two-stage approach. If it's necessary, obviously, it has to be uh, introduced. If the judge feels it would be of assistance, then it's open to the judge to introduce, to, to adopt the expert evidence. But uh, that, that would be discretionary. And I think that's probably a good test. Um, <clears throat> I mean, the Kennedy case is a the curiously seasonal one because it concerns a social worker who was visiting a client in the course of her work on a snowy day and when she got out of her car she slipped and fell and the 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 expert evidence was from a health and safety expert who basically had to look at the issue of you know when you are requiring a an employee to to, to go out and about on a day when they're likely to slip and fall? Should you be providing them with certain directions? Should you require, be requiring them to go out at all? Should, should they be provided with the appropriate kind of grips on their, their shoes? You know, I mean, very often these things almost sound a little bit trivial when you discuss them. But then, of course, you, you know, the, the, these are issues in employment. And obviously, the employment relationship is different from somebody who just decides to, to go out of their house and go and get you know something something from the shop because an employee is required to um to, to go out and about and, and they don't have the option of staying in a lot of the time um, mark i wonder could we now move to another topic and that is a project that you've been working on with ourselves which you are also author annually for us and that's the irish tax reports on bloomsbury professional online is it a challenge to make tax law interesting for readers when writing such reports? Well, yeah, I, I don't work in the tax area at all. So it's, um, I say, I suppose you could say I'd take a certain masochistic enjoyment in writing tax cases. Um, I don't know myself whether my tax reports, or the ones I've written, are in any way interesting to readers. But I think there's a sort of general approach I take to law reporting because I, I I really have written probably more law reports in my life than, than is healthy. I've probably written over 3,000 at this stage. Um, I suppose my, my main approach to it is, first of all, that however complex or uh, obscure the case is, there at the at, at heart, there there are individual people involved whose interests are at stake, and sometimes it takes a while to read through a judgment to identify those those people and those interests. And then the second thing is that any rule of law, again, however obscure it sounds, there's always a reason behind it. And if you can explain the case and how it affects the person and their interests, 
and then how the law is applied and why that law is in place, then everything else kind of follows from that. I mean, it's a kind of a jigsaw puzzle. But very often, you know, I mean, some of the cases I've done for the Irish tax reports are well over 100 pages long, and I'm trying to summarize them down to about a page and a half. And that's really what I'm looking for. It's the it's the the fundamental interest affected and the not just the rule of law, but why it why the rule of law is in place. Would you be able to explain the case of Minister of Finance versus Air Aaron concerning travel tax, which you included in your latest uh, tax reports? I would. Now, this is a it, it, it's a complicated case, so it'll it, it, it'll take a, a short while to explain. But basically what that related to was air travel tax. So during the financial crisis back in 2009 or so, the state introduced a travel tax so that anybody getting on an aeroplane had to pay a travel tax of 10 euro per passenger. Um, However, anybody who was flying to a destination within 300 kilometers of Dublin airport only had to pay two kilometers, sorry, two euro per passenger. So 10 euro for all flights except those within 300 kilometers of Dublin airport. and ultimately, uh, that was found to be what they call state aid. In other words, they said that by, giving, by introducing a differential tax, that the Irish state was supporting domestic airlines over other European airlines. And so, and the rule in Europe in, under EU law is that where unlawful state aid has been provided, the state is obliged to get it back again. So by the time this arose, the the benefit to Air Aaron was 3 million euro, give or take, about 3.2 million euro. And so the state went to try and get that back again. In the meantime, Air Aaron had undergone restructuring. So basically, they'd been nearly insolvent. They'd gone through examinership, they'd settled with their creditors, and they'd come out the other side of the examinership process. And they said, well, if the state is looking to recoup 3 million euro, they should have done that during the examinership process. They can't turn up at a later date and seek to recoup it. And so that went to to the High Court and then on to the Court of Appeal. And ultimately what was found was that under European law, not only does the state need to recoup um, uh, unlawful uh, state aid, it has to do that even if the result is to drive the company involved into insolvency. So it's a very harsh rule from from the EU's point of view but that was what was held by the Court of Appeal. And so Air Aaron was, was still obliged to pay the 3 million euro back to the state, which arguably they'd never had because they thought they were just paying a 2 euro travel tax. That's really interesting. Um, another case, nationwide controlled versus revenue concerning clamping of cars. That's another kind of interesting one. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, well, this, well every driver will know about the, the, this issue. Um, although the, the, the tax implications are, are, are of less concern. So, so basically what happened here was that the, the, the plaintiff in the case, Nationwide Controlled Parking Systems Limited, was a car clamping company that provided clamping services for private car parks. And they had paid that for a number of years. And then they applied to have the, that repaid. And I think it was on the basis that they'd come across English legislation that says that that, that declamping charges were not paid for a service. They were effectively in the nature of damages for trespass. 
Um, and so, so the, the, the matter went before the High Court and then ultimately the Court of Appeal. And the Court of Appeal looked at the overall um, system and basically said, in short, that declamping of a car was a service provided by nationwide um, uh, nationwide controlled parking systems. And even if you hadn't entered into a contract with them to declamp your car, it was a it was contractual in nature in that if you went into a private car park and were adequately warned that there would be a clamp put on your car, then once it was put there and you were then ringing them up and saying, right, I need you to declamp me, that was sufficiently close to a service provided by them that it was battable and it wasn't in the nature of, as they would try to argue, damages for trespass, because that would have involved a completely different legal relationship between the company and the people who they they were declamping. Thanks for that, Mark. Um, And then while we're here and we're picking your brains on, on, on all the, the cases um, you recently provided a really interesting analysis of a case where the High Court dismissed a claim by the importer of used vehicles for damages and mandatory injunctions arising from an allegedly unlawful system of assessment of VRT. Could you tell us about that one? Yeah, now that um, what happened in that case was it was a company that was selling um, Japanese imports of cars and the the vehicle registration tax system had come in, I think, back in about in the in the 1990s, um, and the and under EU law again, the, the, you can't discriminate between types of um, vehicles. So I, I think so. So companies that were introduced were, were selling Japanese imports. Um, Found that there was a system of assessing the value of the import when they were register the value of the car when they were registering it, and the problem was that they couldn't get sufficient information from the revenue as to the basis for the um, the assessment of the value, and they were trying to argue that the that that they had been overcharged vehicle registration tax. Now. And they also tried to argue that they'd been overcharged in relation to certain Japanese imports that had come into Ireland via Northern Ireland, because Northern Ireland, obviously, at the time was an EU was part of an EU state. Um, ultimately, what was determined there was that the revenue had acted unlawfully in not providing the basis for the assessment. So, it, at the trial of the action, it turned out that they had a quite reasonably detailed. Uh, method for assessing the value of Japanese imports, but and the the, the court actually ultimately accepted that that was a, a reasonable basis for it. But what they held was unlawful was the fact that the that the company had had to wait until the trial of the action to get that information from the revenue. So in fact, they kind of they won and they lost in that they they certainly were entitled to that information and should have had it at a much earlier stage. But once it got to hearing. The, the court said in relation to the ones imported directly from Japan that there had been no unlawfulness. And then they remitted to the High Court the very narrow issue of 44 cars that had been imported to the state via Northern Ireland. And they said that that's something that the High Court might yet determine. But they also said that because the matter had been before the courts for so many years, it was it was open to the High Court to dismiss that aspect of the claim for delay. 
Very interesting. I quite admire the way you can recall all of these 3,000 cases that you have, have uh, I can written. I show you. Um, most and, most and, more to get within 15 minutes of writing <laughs> Um, you're 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 a pro at this stage, and of course, um, subscribers to Bloomsbury Professional Online will will uh, be very familiar with your excellent decisis reports. But you do have quite the varied career mark between your coursework, your podcast, um, your books, and uh, your case analysis. Do you find it interesting um, doing it all, or how do you how do you keep going? Um, I think I keep a lot of balls in the air at any one time. I, I mean, I do I do find. I, I suppose because I've been reporting cases for so long, I do sort of ha- have a kind of, I suppose you call it a nerdy interest in, in in legal issues generally, which sometimes I'm surprised to find a lot of my colleagues don't share. They don't really want to know about uh, law outside their own narrow area, whereas I'm, I tend to kind of find it just interesting generally. The A lot of it has grown out of the law reporting side. I mean, I, I started reporting cases around the time I qualified as a barrister. I worked, as you, I'm sure you know, on Lefoy's conveyancing precedent. So there's a law reporting section of that that I started back in about 2007. And in fact, it was arising from that kind of work that I started Decisive in the first place because um, I became very aware that there were hundreds of cases being, uh, hundreds of judgments being delivered by the superior courts, but there was no proper index to them. And so I suppose Decisis, I started as, a, as an attempt to to try and index them. So it's, it's kind of grown a bit from that, but ultimately that was the, the purpose. And then the, the the podcasting kind of grew out of that as well, because um, I, I started on a, a colleague of mine, Andrew Robinson, had a show on Near FM called The Brief. And so I would go on every week and just talk about a few recent cases. Um, and then a few years later, Peter Leonard and I started a, a different podcast um, and now we're doing the fifth course. And Mark, do you find that writing the case reports, it helps you with your coursework because you're constantly up to date on the law and I'm, I'm sure colleagues turn to you for your knowledge on various cases or various issues. Do you find well, that? Well, I, I hope they turn to decisis before they turn to me. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't, I, you know, obviously I don't write all by any means all of the cases in decisis. I, we have a very good team at this stage. I, I mean, the uh, yes, I do find it useful in practice. I mean, in terms of particularly writing opinions and submissions. Um, but what I also found when I started writing reports was it was very good discipline in terms of the structure of any letters of advice that I wrote and any opinions, because um, you very often find, uh, with all due respect to our judiciary, that some people... So, should we say some judges have a much more structured approach to their to their judgments than others, and so sometimes you really do have to tear a judgment apart and put it back together again when you're reporting it. And so I I like to think that I have, in light of that kind of work, a much more structured approach to to my own legal work. And is it a challenge keeping up to date with the case updates, or do you have any tips for practitioners on the on kind of keeping that continuous awareness of cases? Well, my number one tip, obviously, would be to subscribe to Decisis. <laughs> um, but uh, <laughs> if 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 you don't want to do that, then the I mean, basically, what happens is the court services um, re- release a certain number of judgments every evening. Um, so you know, if you if it's obviously open to anybody to to read those, there are. Um, I think approximately 1,400 judgments delivered every year. When when we started to decide this, I think it was about 650 per year. 
Um, and the first year or so, I wrote pretty much all of the, ju- the, the, the reports, whereas there's no way I could do anything like that now. Um, so, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's obviously anybody can, can, can keep in touch just by looking at the core services. Um, I think what we do in Decisis is we, we provide a kind of bite-sized report so, such that you can see reasonably quickly whether or not the, a, a recent judgment is likely to be of, of relevance to your practice. That's fantastic. And I think we're actually coming to the end of our discussion. I just have a few more of our uh, kind of lighthearted round. So sure. uh, to start us off, I think we've just got what book are you currently reading? I very often have a number of books open uh, that I'm kind of halfway through. The two mammoth tomes that I started some time ago and that I kind of I, I hope I get time to, to read a bit more of over Christmas. One is the first volume of Robert Caro's biography of Lyndon Johnson, which is a, uh, he started writing in, I think, 1975, and he's still working on the final volume. And I think it might take me that long to finish reading them, um, because I'm about halfway through the first volume, which is called, um, I think it's called A Path to Power. And then the other one is the diaries of Chips Channon, who was this um, very wealthy kind of socialite who became an MP and married a member of the Guinness family and wrote extraordinarily frank diaries between kind of 1918 and I suppose the 1950s. And again, I, in fact, I read the the, the, the the narrower version about 20 years ago, but the, the, the full version has now been published and um, I, they're pretty, they're fairly racy stuff, including, well, I, 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 I'll let your listeners um, get, get their own copy, but it's certainly well worth reading. That's wonderful. And so then what would you say is your favorite book? Uh, it's very difficult to, to choose a favorite book. I mean, one book that I certainly think everybody should read is um, Goodbye to All That by Robert Graves, which is a, um, it's his memoir. It's a, it's a reasonably short book and it's his memoir of the First World War. But it, I just found it really kind of, it, it kind of brought home to you certain things about so, soldiers in the trenches and, and a lot of real black humor as well as um, a, a sort of curious things like his relationship with his parents as he sort of went into the army and things like having come back from being lost for dead and then getting into an argument with his parents as to whether he went to church on the sun, on the Sunday morning, that kind of thing. It just seemed odd, oddly kind of, uh, it, it was an odd insight anyway. Yeah, it's a it's a wonderful book. I actually have it on my shelf beside me here. Um, <laughs> so then our next question is, three things you would bring to a desert island? Uh, I, 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 on a cold day like today i can only dream of being on a desert island and just being there would be enough i would almost have thought um if i had a lot of time i think i would get a set of paints and canvases or paper or whatever and teach myself to paint because it's something that i i'd love to do but i've never really found i had the time um and apart from that uh, some if it's a tropical desert island, which I hope it would be, I would have lots of uh, appropriate drinks, whether uh, cool beer or Aperol spritzes or something like that. Um, and then a nice, comfortable Wonderful. chair to sit on. And I think that maybe gives us a little bit of an insight into your out of mm-hmm. out of work hobbies. But maybe if you could tell us a little bit of the things you like to do outside of work. Well, there's a danger that it sounds as if I, I spend most of my time just reporting cases. Um, I do have two small children, so a lot of my time outside of work is just ferrying them from activity to activity. Um, if I had a bit more time, I would go hill walking a lot more. I, I, I did a lot of hill walking when I was a bit younger. I don't have time now, but I would 
certainly like to do a lot more of that. And of course, you've got your own podcast, which I presume you do in your own time. Yes, the, yes, the, we 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 te- we we record that. Um, we we now try to record a kind of few, a couple of episodes together, but uh, so we don't have to kind of go into studio every week. But uh, yeah, that, that that's good fun, and it's a it's a chance to meet kind of other lawyers and discuss kind of areas that I wouldn't normally be discussing. Yeah, uh, you, you've you been interested in podcasts for a long time. I remember when we set up this podcast, you were the first person to say yes. So you were our very in, first episode indeed, I, I don't, on this I don't podcast. know if I'm your first repeat guest, but uh, yeah. So, so I, I wasn't asked difficult questions then about desert islands and that kind of thing. It was a much more serious podcast in those days, I think. But just before we move on, perhaps you'd like to tell our listeners where, to, where they can find your own podcast. Oh, yeah. So it's called The Fifth Court. Um and uh, I think they, they, what's the phrase they use, wherever you get your podcasts. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, I mean, if you Google Mark Tottenham podcast or just look up the fifth court. And I mean, my the podcast app I use is called Pocket Casts, which is excellent. So I, I highly recommend it. But certainly you'll find it on uh, either Spotify or Apple Podcasts or any of those. Wonderful. And then we just have one last question in our, our light round, mm. which is, if you weren't a lawyer, what would you be? Um, well, as I think you know, I used to work in publishing like yourself. So if I, possibly if in, a, in a different world, I would have remained as a publisher. I suppose I, I would have been very interested to become a journalist, um, but I, I think I never quite had the nerve to sort of to go down that particular route. So I suppose the podcasting is is a, move, a small move in that kind of direction. Um, and, you know, I suppose just a general interest in current affairs and that kind of thing. So, um, again, I never, I never went into politics or anything like that. But I suppose if, if, I, if, I, if I were a little bit more forthright, I would have become a journalist or a politician or something. But uh, I think I'd probably remain as a, as a lawyer. Well, thank you so much. It's been a delight having you back on Over to Dicta after all this time. <laughs> Well, thanks very much for asking me. Thanks, Mark. Take care. Thanks to Mark Tottenham for joining us. You can purchase his book, A Guide to Expert Witness Evidence, on bloomsburyprofessional.com, where you can also register for a free trial of our Irish tax online service. We hope you enjoyed the episode.